This is episode 7 of the Eco Warriors podcast featuring Larissa Zimbaroff of Technically Food. You're listening to the Eco Warriors podcast featuring inspiring stories from women in green business, sustainability, and conservation. Here's your host, Barbara Lee. As the holidays are coming up, I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'll be eating while surrounded by friends and family. Thanksgiving is one of the only times of the year that I indulge in turkey and stuffing smothered in gravy. But what if you're an environmentally conscious vegetarian and you're celebrating with other non-vegetarians? This week, we sit down to explore the world of cultured animal products and meat alternatives with investigative journalist and author Larissa Zimbaroff. Larissa has been researching and sampling her way through some of the most interesting animal product alternatives on the market, including things like fake milk and cultured pork fat that is made into a plant-based sausage. I was thrilled to hear about Larissa's thoughts on the food of our future as well as the lab-grown meat industry. Let's jump in. Hey, Larissa, welcome to the Eco Warriors podcast. Hey, Barbara, thank you for having me. Could you tell the audience who you are and what it is that you do? Uh, Sure. Yeah. I'm an author and journalist. I cover the intersection of food and technology. Most often I write for Bloomberg, but I've also been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, Wired, and more. I recently had a book come out called Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. And it's been pretty exciting to to see it get, get into the world. Yeah. And I've been reading snippets of your book and your newsletter, and it's been fascinating to see what you've been sampling and exploring. How did you get into this line of work? Good question. I got laid off twice. Oh, man. So I got laid off and started applying to graduate school. I I lived and worked in the Bay Area in technology. And I got laid off during the mortgage crisis of like 08, 09 and started writing and really liked it. But then I got a job offer that I couldn't refuse. I took the job. And then a year later, I got laid off again. So I... I flew to New York, went to grad school, got my MFA in creative writing and immersed myself into like what to do next, right? It was my second career. I was in New York. I was a little older. It was definitely an interesting moment, an inflection moment for me because I had to figure out what I was going to do. And food was always the threat that kind of got me excited. I, I had in San Francisco, I had volunteered at 18 Reasons, which is a nonprofit around food here. In school, I was always writing about food and I thought, I felt that eventually I started covering accelerators and incubators that were in New York and the the sort of marriage of technology and food seemed to be like my sweet spot. What's been the most interesting thing you've tried so far? Ooh, food that I've tried. Well, yesterday I tried fat. What? Okay. What? (laughs) I ate cultured fat. Uh, So fat made in the lab that's from animal cells. This is from pork. And it was uh, turned into a meatball and a sausage, both using uh, plant protein, namely pea protein. And the fat was blended in with it. And Barbara, it was delicious. Wow. I was expecting something else entirely, but fat. All right. Um, Now I have so many questions. First of all, one of the things that you talk about in your book is the difference between how to classify foods. For example, is the fat that you tried vegetarian, vegan, or is it plant-based? 
Yeah, it's going to be super complicated. In my book, I detail a story about sharing ice cream and the ice cream is made with non-animal whey protein. It does start with cells from a cow, but just once, right? Once, and then it can go away again and again and again, and it doesn't have to go back to the cow. The same protein that comes from a cow, but it doesn't rely on the cow. And I posted it to a vegan business group that I belong to on Facebook and everybody had a comment and it was so amazing to see the dialogue, right? Some people said, this needs more education. This pe- Some people said, I won't buy this. Some people said, what does this mean? I don't get it. Well, it's still dairy, right? So it is still dairy. And I've had other people who aren't vegans say, wait, I bought this and it's dairy. And I'm like, yeah, it's still dairy. So there are questions about, is it vegan? Is it not vegan? And then there are questions about, is it dairy? Is it not dairy? And that that's easier to answer, right? It's dairy, but people don't get it. It's so interesting because there are a lot of issues here, like people who want to live a vegan lifestyle versus someone who's lactose intolerant. What are the trends you're seeing from consumers? I think people are open. I think people are seem very open to trying things, but like what they say and what they do are very different. Now, this, this fat that's, that was in sausage, right? It will be listed as cultured pork fat. And that's very unclear, right? I, you don't know that that's been grown, right? So there needs, and it's, there's not going to be like a whole page of information on the box, right? So how are people going to understand it? So right now we're at this point where people are just intrigued, right? It's one of the reasons I wrote my book. People were always asking me questions. Is this delicious? Is this safe? What does this mean? Is this good for the planet? Is this healthy? They had strangers, family, friends, everybody had questions, right? So these questions are going to have to be answered. And the education moment hasn't really come yet because it's still just in the like fervor and excitement, right? Investment dollars, um, press attention, people like me tasting and writing books, but it hasn't come into the supermarket in a big way, except for maybe, you know, beyond and impossible. Yeah. And I think consumers have had mixed reactions. I even hear within my own circle of people saying that there are some plant-based foods that are giving people cancer and concerns around genetically modified foods or lab-grown products. Yeah. I mean, aren't you getting cancer from it is is not something I've heard attached to beyond and impossible, but is attached to you know, our way of life or the American diet or the environment, right? So our food is is a direct, is directly related to that, right? The crops that grow in the ground, right? They have things like Roundup in them. They are problematic to our health. So that's like the going deep, right? Into, into the ingredient in a product, um, which I definitely like to do, but not everybody does, right? It's why I might want to just buy from farmer's markets or just buy organic, or, you know, be thoughtful about each of the ingredients that's in the food I eat as much as I can. I think that we are all getting very hyper-focused on on what we eat as individuals. I think what the industry needs, though, is someone looking out for our health and someone looking at the American diet. I think the American diet has its um, problems and we are just sort of perpetuating it, even with this new excitement of technology. Do you have any concerns from what you're seeing today for these modified or lab-grown foods? I think that an industrialized food system is not is not what's best for us. So industrialized foods, hyper-processed foods, ultra-processed foods, foods that have ingredients that come from 10 different countries that are touched by 20 different companies, those aren't intrinsically good for us. Those aren't healthy for my body, right? The doctors will say the Mediterranean diet whole foods, fruits and vegetables, nuts, legumes, you know, some fish, you know, infrequent meat, right? 
that's what we're told is healthy for us. And, and as someone with type one diabetes, which I mentioned in my book, I look at that very, very like strictly. And I think about what I'm putting in my mouth because I know that it's easier to run, operate my system, right? I have to be the computer to my, my body, right? You, you, Barbara, yours works fine. Mine does not. So I have to like help it, right? And the easier, the better, the better I eat, the easier my life is. There are so many ties to food, your health, the environment, culture. I want to hone in on the sustainability aspect, though, because I see these statistics and reports from companies that say lab-grown meats have a significantly lower impact on the environment. I'd love to believe that that's true, but I'm wondering if you could shed some light on the topic. I think that one, no one has scaled up. So actually getting like realistic numbers is kind of a, a fallacy right now. Right. Even though companies are doing sort of life cycle carbon analysis to see what may come, there is a study out of Oxford that I mentioned in my book that says that initially cultured beet is better for the planet, but because it's carbon over methane, methane dissipates faster. So eventually agriculture comes out ahead. Now we can, we can do away with that, that challenge because people, uh, companies can use renewable energy, but it is something to think about because energy is getting more expensive and it is something that's becoming, I mean, I've had power outages here in the Bay area, like it power outages around the world. It's not an infrequent kind of idea. Yes. I think that it seems to point that point to an environmental benefit to go to go away from industrial animal agriculture. And I personally don't want my world like littered with cheap meat. Like we don't need that until it scales, until it's proven. It's really hard to be, to be certain. And what are you seeing so far? I'm sure folks who are seeing these claims out in the wild would love your expert advice. Well, if you want to look at numbers, plant-based meat has sold less than 1% of the $3 trillion animal meat industry. So we think it's like everywhere, but it's not, right? So at the moment, it's still just a glimmer in anybody's eye at plant-based meat. And I was recently at a conference where a colleague asked, when would cultured meat be 1% of the meat industry? He asked me this question and I thought about it and I thought, well, 20 years, you know? So these are all really hypothetical questions about whether they're going to save the planet and the environment. I think that we do need to make dramatic changes, but it can just be cultured meat. Do you know what goes into the analysis for calculating environmental impact of food? I can imagine that they're they're looking at, like with industrial animal agriculture, they're looking at rainfall, they're looking at um, how long the animals are on the land, what they're doing to the land, what the land needs to be re- recovered, what kind of fertilizers, what kind of inputs they need, right? It is similar in a way to cultured meat, right? Because there are inputs to cultured meat. It needs, the cells need feeding nutrients, just like the cow needs to be fed nutrients to grow. So, you know, the one thing that a, a farm doesn't need a lot of is is energy, right? From the grid, carbon, but it, it produces, overproduces methane, right? And it is damaging if we're clear cutting to make more room for animals. A facility for cultured meat, like uh, for example, Upside Foods just opened a facility in Emeryville. They're going to just need energy. They're going to need a lot of water. They're going to need a lot of expensive employees like engineers, right? Their hit is mostly energy and water. Again, those are just sort of like approximates of what they're looking at, but these are like teams of academics who are looking at it. That's not my area. That's okay. I just figured that you knew more than I do, which it sounds like is true. So another thing that's important to think about with an LCA is that transportation, right? Transportation is actually the biggest, one of the bigger hits in uh, climate damage. And so people like to point to agriculture as needing 
a lot of transportation and culture meat companies might say, well, we're going to, we're going to pop up in a city. So it's like Emeryville where Upside Foods is, right? They're just like, we'll serve the Bay area. They do have a point there. Transportation miles are crucial to thinking about carbon analysis. If you look at shipping, that doesn't have quite an impact. So it's a really complicated area because culture meat's going to need refrigerated trucks. So there's that part and, you know, eat just, which is being sold in Singapore, you know, they're, 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 they're getting ingredients from all around the world, right? They need a supply chain of nutrients, right? So it isn't as simple as like, oh, we're in the city and we'll sell steaks to people in the city. Yeah. And I think about this a lot when I'm traveling. So for example, I was in Seattle recently and when I was there, I was eating a lot more seafood, but you know, when I'm in Arkansas, I'm not going out and buying sushi. (laughs) Don't, don't buy sushi in Arkansas. That should be the title of this podcast. So I think it comes down to how do we educate consumers on what they should or should not be eating. Yeah, I know. People don't like to change. In terms of the brands that you're meeting, who are the folks that are starting these companies? Like who's behind these movements? I kind of always reference that they're mission driven, right? They are all so laser focused on the environment and, and or animal saving. My question with the book was, is this healthy for me? Right. And then people might say, well, if we don't have a planet, what's the point? Right. But because I have diabetes, it's like, well, it doesn't really matter because for me to survive, I need healthy food that's good for me. And I want to be certain that it's good for me. These founders are often vegan and right. They're very, they're very driven and food is exciting, right? I, these companies aren't food companies. These are technology companies and they're getting tons of investment, like crazy amounts of investment. I, I, I covered this like, you know, kind of faux chocolate company that was founded, you know, this year, right? And they just got $6 million of funding, right? They can just like, if you think it, you can make it happen. Um, and so I think there's just a lot of like enthusiasm, excitement. Like if we look at Pat Brown, there's like the fervor that he wants to like change the world. That seems to be pretty um, common, a common thread through founders. Most aren't talking about making money, but in the end, making money is the point. Would you imagine this is the future of our food system? I dream one day about having a 3D printer and see the trend of how we optimize nutrition for everything that we eat and consume. What do you think the future of food is? Yeah, optimizing is a good word, Barbara. Companies are, we're going to see hybrids. We're going to see for the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to see just like, like if you look at the dairy aisle, I think that that's what, what we're going to see happen to other areas of the supermarket. We're going to have a lot of competition. We're going to have a lot of options. People are still wondering, which plant-based milk should I drink, right? And um, it, we've had plant-based milk out for decades. So I think we're going to see these hybrids, right? So this uh, sausage I ate yesterday have, had cultured fat, but it had plant-based protein. So we're going to start seeing that. So both all these cultured companies still need FDA and USDA approval to sell, to be sold. So we won't see them yet, right? They'll take time. But I think these these hybrids is what we're going to see for at least a decade, if not more. And, you know, people excited to try it, the foodies, the innovators, the I'm, I have to try it. First people are, are going to be first in line. The gourmets, right? Dominique Crenn said she'd serve Upside Foods chicken in her three star, three Michelin star restaurant. So we're going to be staying continued chatter about it. The media is, is going to cover it because all this investment is going into it. And the only thing that might change that trajectory is another pandemic, like drought, right? No water, no, no energy, like big human climate problems. And, you know, living through COVID, 
like there's a lot of potential that that could happen. And if that does happen, it could either accelerate it or sort of just blow it up, right? Where we're just like, you know, like Mad Max kind of life. <laughs> yeah. And obviously living in California where most of the U.S.'s produce is grown, the drought is top of mind. I think about all the core things that go into making plant-based meat alternatives like soy and peas and alfalfa. There is an impact to growing these products, but apparently it's not as high as the impact of animal farming. Absolutely. But all those crops still need to be grown, right? Like you just like you just mentioned. I think rewilding the land, not clear-cutting land, like thinking about, I mean, right now there's the Glasgow climate event that's happening. So much can be done and thought about. But in tandem to thinking about the climate, I think we have to think about our diet, our the American Yes. And I do eat fairly healthy because my own health issues and I require a high protein, low glycemic index food diet. And for my diet, there's a lot of challenges around what you can eat if you're thinking about the impact that your food has on the environment. So for example, I eat mostly plant-based and I buy local, but it limits what I can fit into my diet and also around seasonality. It feels like there's what's healthy and what's good for the environment and they could be counter to each other. So what do you think is the trend of what Americans will be eating in the future? Well, back to, you know, how I pointed out that we're all sort of individually tinkering, right? So I'm guessing you eat maybe a keto lifestyle. More or less, yeah. Yeah. And I do intermittent fasting with as low carb as I can. Same. But knowing that I want to live my life and occasionally have a cookie or, you know, whatever, some, some yogurt and granola. I think, you know, there are companies looking at our microbiome. There are th- companies looking at our flora. There are, there are companies selling probiotics that are tailored to our exact body. Uh, I think that people are getting more and more interested in sort of their, their individual needs. But I also think we're in a, Barbara, we're in a bubble, right? We're like top 1% of people who are like crazy about thinking and talking about food. Everyone else is just eating steak and potatoes. Yeah, that demographic is going to grow. And Gen Z and Gen Alpha, I mean, they're going to accelerate it. I haven't, I haven't done enough research into those generations to see where, where they fit. You know, I talked to my niece who's in college and she's like, I eat once a day. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And so, and so I think that, um, I think they're going to be the adopters of these new, these new foods, like not, not even think about it. I'm still, wondering like, what about Thanksgiving and and Passover and culturally important foods, Diwali, Day of the Dead, like how do those continue, right? So that's again, back to the hybrid, which is that we want new solutions on the marketplace, but then we're still going to have the traditional solutions. But again, we've got to think about this, like focus on convenience, packaged food, processed food, you know, the foods with sugar, fat, you know, carbohydrates, salt that aren't, aren't good for us. Let's talk about the holidays because they're coming up. And as someone who hasn't eaten a lot of traditional holiday food, like roasted ham and prime rib for almost two decades now, it's very different for me, right? I'm kind of used to this idea that around the holidays, I don't go and have these traditional foods, but I do believe that food is very cultural. That's a good question. I Thanksgiving is something is I'm usually with my family and one of the members is a kind of a strict vegetarian and she had raised her kids, my niece and nephew as vegetarians. So we've always eat fish because she would let them eat fish. That you know. So I sort of left turkey behind a long time ago. And when I think about turkey, the thing I really only want is the skin. <laughs> the crispy skin as the turkey comes out, right? That cultural moment of like my dad carving the turkey and me like, you know, stealing little bites from the cutting board. But a good point, which is that like I, I have these two dinners coming up is like future food dinners in the city in San Francisco. And one of the dishes is going to be a chicken leg. And the chicken leg is made from chicken chickpea protein and the skin is made from soy flour and it, it like 
browns and it crackles. And when you bite into it, it like tears and like crunches. You know, it doesn't have the fat that, that you might want, but it gives you a lot of the other things that you get from like that experience of me like pulling skin off the cutting board. So I think that the options are getting really good. You know what's interesting is I feel like before the only people who would drink soy milk and eat alternative cheeses would be vegans. But now there are people who eat fake meats and drink oat milk and eat cashew cheese. I feel like the change has become mainstream. So omnivores are actually partaking in these alternatives. Yeah, I eat them too. I I love trying everything, right? My freezer is full of kind of all kinds of crazy stuff. And I think the flexitarian model is really expanding. And that is that's good for that. I think that's what we're seeing right now in the numbers is that the flexitarian model is expanding. But you probably still see it mostly on the coasts. And we haven't really like kind of immersed ourselves in the, in the middle of the country. When the plant-based burgers launched at all of the fast food restaurants, they were blowing up. They were doing so well. And then Burger King, Carl's Jr., McDonald's, didn't stop marketing it as much, right? And so then sales dropped, right? So there's still this like new, right? Interest in the new. So how how these products will do when they're not new, when they're no longer new, when it sort of shakes down and there's fewer brands to choose from will be interesting to see. I love that you call it the flexitarian model. I call my diet the ecotarian model because I try not to eat stuff that's going to be really impactful, like mangoes or lots of avocados. I like that. You know, I just talked to somebody that wants to put carbon effect on products, right? On packaging, like like non-GMO verified, it'll be like the carbon impact of what you're buying. And so, and he, you know, they're wondering, like, will people care? Will people understand it? Will people want that, you know? And I would, I look at where, where the apple's from. Is it from, you know, Washington or is it from New York? Yeah. I mean, it's like how Google has included carbon impact for driving and flying routes on maps and flights, because I did used to have this mental model in my head that it was always less impactful to take the highway, but Google tells me, nope, take the surface roads. And so it is making me adjust my behavior every day in the moment. So I think there is a piece of education that we are still missing as consumers. Mm -hmm. I think education will be kind of the linchpin of, of changing changing diet. But, you know, I don't know. We see we see what's going on with the vaccine. I know that adoption is picking up, but that's because, you know, companies are mandating it. But I think it's a good it's a good example to watch over as as far as like getting people to eat differently. So what should consumers do? What is the call to action here? Well, read my book, of course. Um, <laughs> sign up for my newsletter, which goes out on Fridays. But really, it, it's just being more informed, right? It's it's understanding ingredients. Even when, when I find an ingredient that I don't know, I look it up and I read about it. I recently got turned on to Hearts of Palm Pasta. Oh my gosh, Barbara, you will love it. Super low carb. And it's, I wouldn't call it pasta. It's maybe like, you know, kind of zoodles-ish, um, but it's so good. And I don't eat, I don't eat pasta unless I'm at a like fine dining restaurant that serves me pasta, but it's great. And then I posted it to my Instagram and someone said, well, aren't Hearts of Palm damaging to the, to the, to the forest? Then I had to think about it. And then I, I had, I was like, I have to do some research, right? So I don't know the answer yet, Barbara, but it's like, be curious, right? We, we need to be more curious about our food and about what we're eating. Larissa, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. Thanks, Barbara, for having me. This was so fun. Well, culture 
pork fat was not what I was thinking Larissa was going to bring up in our conversation. That just about blew my mind, especially that it's being integrated into a plant-based sausage. If you love food and thinking about what the future food looks like, pick up Larissa's book, Technically Food, and or subscribe to her newsletter. It goes out every Friday and includes some really interesting stories about what Larissa is seeing and eating on the market. We hope that you have a fun, happy, and safe holiday with your family and loved ones. Thanks for listening, eco-warriors. Stay green. The Ikai Warriors podcast is produced by Hansel Rodriguez. Research assistance by Belinda Chu and hosted by Barbara Lee. Thanks for listening. For more inspiration, follow us on Instagram at Eco Warriors Podcast.